Let's jump back into our sermon series in the book of Acts. Book of Acts, let's turn together in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2 as we continue our Spirit Unleashed series. And God is really rocking my faith through the study of this part of His Word. As we are starting a church, as we are trying to build a church, it's no accident that we're studying the blueprint for the church at this critical time in our church's story. And it's been amazing as far as taking the weight off of the human leaders and placing it on the Holy Spirit, right? Again, it's it's not about recruiting people to row the boat, right? And if we get enough people, we can go faster, right? Um, but what ends up happening is it's based on human effort. It's based on human capacity. It's based on human resources. And we end up with this ecclesiology burning people out. And we start recruiting new people to replace the ones we've just burnt out. Right? Where it's like we ring, like we we recruit people and we we use them up and then we we replace them. And the book of Acts gives us a beautiful picture of a church that is not based on human capacity, right? It's, it's not based on what we're capable of accomplishing. It is God, right? God does it, right? God shows up and they are just strapped in along for the ride. And it's a breathtaking ride. So, that's why I've, I've entitled this series Spirit Unleashed. The official name of the book is the Acts of the Apostles, but a more accurate name would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And what I want us to see is this isn't ancient history. The same spirit that empowered those ordinary people is available to us. The same spirit that brought revival to the early church can bring revival to our church. And it's not a question of receiving more from God. I believe it's more about unleashing what we have already received, right? Where we um, we let the wrecking ball of scripture demolish the dams that we've constructed to control the river of life, right? That's coming from the Holy Spirit inside of the Christian. So in Acts chapter 2, we're going <laughs> to, I was hoping to get through the rest of Peter's sermon, but in my study, I just couldn't do it. Right? There's so much here. So we, we, we looked at the first portion of uh, the first sermon of the church, and now we're going to pick up in verse 22. This is Peter preaching. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. 
but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So I want to unpack the second part of Peter's sermon. And right out of the gate today, Peter is confirming the humanity of Jesus. It's not Jesus of heaven, which is also true, right? Jesus is a part of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. But this eternal part of the triune God was especially manifested in the physical life of Jesus, right? The God who does not change, changed, and he became a human for the first time in the existence of God, he did something different on this level where he took on another form. God is eternally pre-existent, right? This is the game that you play with kids. Well, who created the world? God. Well, who created God? <laughs> God is the only uncreated being. He is eternally pre-existent. And so Jesus ultimately is from heaven. He was born a human. <laughs> this is the mind-blowing plan of God for the redemption, for the rescue of humanity, is that the Almighty became an embryo. This, this is the incarnation, right? God becoming human. It was the only way for God to rescue humanity from ourselves because we were in this cycle of sinfulness, this cycle of corruption, and humanity is constantly circling the drain, and so we don't have the resources in and of ourselves to save ourselves. Regardless of the advancements that we have made, we can't stop killing each other. We are addicted to violence. It comes from our nature. It's our sinful nature, and so we needed God to come in from the outside of the corrupted system and to save us from within. That's exactly what he did through Jesus Christ. And what Peter is confirming here is the humanity of Jesus. When he says Jesus of Nazareth, it's not Jesus of glory, although that's true as well, but Peter is intentionally highlighting the humanness of Jesus. He was a real person from a real place, and it was an unlikely place. We're not from the Middle East. We're not from first century Middle East, and so we don't really understand how unlikely a place Nazareth was for to be the hometown of the Son of God, this is um, Podunkville, right? <laughs> this is a village of less than 100 people. No one is expecting anything awesome from Nazareth, right? I guess maybe a Canadian equivalent would be Jesus of Saskatchewan. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Or even to drive it further home, Jesus of Shamatawa, 
right? It's like, whoa, whoa, hey, no, that, because they thought then nothing good comes out of Nazareth, and, and we're not expecting great things out of Saskatchewan, right? We're not, and, and to be real honest, to put it bluntly, we're not expecting anything awesome to come out of a place like Shamatawa. Right. And for those of you that don't know, that is a northern community in Manitoba. Right. And it's it has a reputation of being an incredibly dark place. There's there's been multiple suicides there. There's there's all kind of struggles and addictions and generational challenges. And so we don't expect a global leader to come out of a place like that. So when Peter said Jesus of Nazareth, that is a shocking statement to the original audience. The son of God, it, he should be raised by priest in the temple in Jerusalem, right? That's He should be raised by the most devoted, committed, the guys that had the best resumes. He should be, he should be mentored by the theological PhDs of his day. He should be protected. There should be a royal guard around Jesus. And that wasn't the case, right? He was born to an illiterate peasant girl in a insignificant place. So the humanity of Jesus is confirmed here. A heresy developed in the second century called docetism, right? It taught that Jesus only appeared to have a body, only appeared to have a body, and was not truly human. They believed, they, view, they viewed matter as inherently evil and therefore rejected the idea that God could actually appear in bodily form. And so the church rejected this heresy. But a lot of us, we might tend to drift towards docetism, right? Where we focus more on the divinity of Jesus and not so much on the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was a real person from a real place. For our listeners from the States, it would be Jesus of Puerto Rico, right? They're not even a state, right? They're, they're a territory, right? Jesus of Arkansas. <laughs> Peter is emphatic when he says Jesus was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. He was emphatic saying Jesus was a man, but not just any man, the God-man. And how did God authenticate the divinity of Jesus? Right Through these supernatural manifestations signs and wonders and miracles. God affirmed the divine nature of his son through these miracles, wonders, and signs. God did it through Jesus as a way of authenticating his divine identity. This one word here I found interesting, the one that the NIV brings out as miracles. Miracles, wonders, and signs. Miracles could also be interpreted as mighty deeds or powerful deeds. 
this word appears 10 times in Acts. One, one of those 10 times is right here in, in chapter two that we just read. Miracles, mighty deeds, powerful acts. However, the rest, the remainder of the times that it's used in the book of Acts is not referring to the deeds done through Jesus, but the deeds done through his body, the church, the miraculous activity of the early church. And the church is the body of Christ and is not just called to speak the words of Christ, but to do the works of Christ. Right? And there's this miraculous part of the ministry. There is this supernatural part of the ministry of the church. There are still signs that are given that point to something supernatural, right? If you remember, the whole reason the crowd is gathered in Acts chapter 2, they're not there to hear Peter speak. They're not there to hear Peter preach. They're not there because of the music or because of the amenities, right? They're not there because the church in Jerusalem has a great children's ministry, no, they're there because the Holy Spirit did something, and they were investigating a supernatural event. And Peter preaches to the crowd that God had gathered. And my fear is that we've taken this part out of the ministry of the church, and so we we are speaking the words of Christ, but we're not doing the works of Christ. It, and something that happens that causes those in the vicinity of our faith, in the vicinity of our ministry, to wonder what's going on. Like when, when something is burning, I, it was a couple weeks ago, I was driving back home and I saw a billow of smoke uh, for those from this area. It was going out Wilkes, going west, like out on Wilkes, out towards Oasis Church, um, out actually towards the area that we live now in Charleswood. And it was this bit like this black smoke. Um, and I was curious. <laughs> so you know what I did, right? I went and investigated. So I drove um, and I took a left off Wilkes going down into this neighborhood here. And there was something burning and I saw it from a distance and I was drawn by curiosity to investigate. And I went there and it was, um, the fire trucks had already showed up. They had closed the road. I think it was a house fire. Uh, but my point being, I was going about my business, running my errands, and the, I saw the smoke. And I wasn't the only one, right? There were a lot of curious people that were driving down that road wondering what was burning, right? And just think about this, to apply that spiritually, 
When when we are on fire for God, when a group of people, it's not just a torch, but it's a stack, it's a pile of torches, which is a bonfire, when that creates this spiritual smoke, people in the vicinity of the fire are going to come and investigate the source of the smoke. If there is no fire, right, if there's just evidence of a fire of a previous time, right? If we're singing songs around a pile of ash, uh, then that's not going to cause anyone to be curious. God created the crowd and then Peter delivered the word. And next week, we're going to talk about this, right? Next week, we're going to talk about um, empowered preaching, right? We're going to talk about how essential it is for us to intentionally connect with someone that will wield the sword of the word in such a way that it punctures our hearts rather than tickle our ears, right? That's that's next week because it's amazing. Like it is, it's incredible. The, the results are supernatural, right? I mean, it's, there's no manipulation going on here. It is, it is a blatant work of God, um, and and preachers are a part of that, right? Peter, as really the first preacher of the church, I wouldn't say he did. I wouldn't say he gave the first Christian message because Christ was a preacher, Jesus was a preacher, but this is the first sermon from the church after Pentecost, um, and I really want to. Um, look at how Peter presented the sermon and why it had such power. It says here that God did it. In verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This is the sovereignty of God. And I find great solace in his sovereignty. I find great peace in his providence. Right? This is it. That God, the cross was God, was God's idea. The cross was not plan B. The crucifixion was not a contingency plan. Revelations 13, 8 says, the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. And so this is the mind-blowing, like, incomprehensible love of God. Before God ever said, let there be anything. And when I say God, I'm talking about the triune God. John chapter one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And it says, everything that was made was made to Jesus and for Jesus and by Jesus, right? So Jesus was there at creation as a part of the triune God. And before God ever said, let there be anything, he knew that what he was about to create would eventually torture and murder his son. And yet he chose to create anyway. What kind of love is that? That is supernatural love. That is divine affection. That is sacrificial love. 
Why would God ever willingly create something that he knew would drive spikes through the wrist and the ankles of his son? Because that is the part of God's nature is his love. God is love. And so before the creation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. The the cross has always been God's plan, right? From the very beginning, right, um, that everything in the Old Testament is moving towards the Messiah. Everything is moving towards the crucifixion, right? I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. The... the, um, The author says every story whispers his name. The cross has always been plan A. God never has to regroup. He never has to go back to the drawing board. He never has to improvise. He never has to adapt. He never has to overcome. He is always sovereign, meaning he has, he always has supreme power and ultimate authority. And once we get this, we can find great solace in his sovereignty. When the world seems like it is chaos, when the world seems like it is headed towards anarchy, when the world seems like it's spinning out of control, we have this anchor that comes from our theology, that we believe in the ultimate authority of God, that Jesus is always on his throne, and that his power is never in question. His authority is never at risk. He has supreme power and ultimate authority. And then Peter, Peter gets personal, right? It's one thing to talk about these broad theologies. He said, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, and you with the help of wicked men, Put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So Peter puts the hammer in everyone's hand. It's like, okay, wait, time out. Time out, y'all. He's preaching to a crowd of thousands. We know that because 3,000 get saved. There's at least three, and there's a lot more than three, because three just came forward and place their faith in Christ, and were baptized. So there's thousands, thousands there, and they're there to, most of them were there, uh, they had journeyed to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Pentecost, the feast of Pentecost, and most in the crowd had nothing to do with the ambush and the murder of Jesus. I want you to get this here, right? Because this has radical implications for us because we weren't there either, right? So how can how can we say that we're culpable? How can we say that we are responsible when we weren't there, right? And here's one of the takeaways from this truth is we don't have to be present to be complicit. I want you to think about this. Because Peter is talking to people, some of them weren't even in the same town, right? Some of them had arrived into Jerusalem after the crucifixion. 
And yet he looks at them. Peter is anointed. He's empowered. And he says, you, like, where's the camera? Right here. He says, you, you killed Jesus. Can you imagine the crowd? You could hear a pin drop. Whoa. Is he point? Is he? Is he looking at me? Right? Wait, bro. I wasn't there, man. Like you're talking, like, and so Peter gets very personal. Many in the crowd had nothing to do with the ambush and murder of Jesus. They, most of them, if not all of them, had heard rumors of this renegade rabbi. Some were most likely in the crowd that day. And a few of them may have even shouted, crucify, crucify, right? So that portion of the crowd, it's easy to see their complicity in the crucifixion, right? Because there were some of them that were actually there. And, and a few of them even condoned it vocally. But yet most of them would not have been convicted in a court of law for murder. Like, where, what are you talking about? I have eyewitnesses that put me in another town. And yet here's this preacher telling me that I killed Jesus of Nazareth. Peter holds them personally responsible. And he doesn't start with the obvious candidates. Oh, he gets to them, right? But he first says, but you, you murdered Jesus with the help of wicked men. He doesn't start with wicked men. We weren't there in person, but every human being was there in spirit. I think this is what Peter's getting at. Our sins were present at the cross, on the cross. My sins, my sins were there on the cross. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's hanging by choice, right? He could have snapped his fingers, right? In the same love that motivated the initial creation is the love that motivated Jesus staying on the cross in recreation. He could have snapped his fingers and 10,000 angels would have come down and defeated those that were torturing him. And so Jesus is hanging on the cross as the God-man and it's the ultimate indictment of the total depravity of humanity. This is how we treated God's son. And it is evidence of our own depravity that we think we would have done any different. The arrogance to think that we would have not done what the disciples did, that we would have not done what the crowd did, what the religious leaders did that we would have not betrayed Jesus. And yet we are blinded by our arrogance, 
Because how many times have we betrayed Jesus? Come on. How many times have we willfully sinned and betrayed our allegiance to Jesus? And Jesus is hanging there, and it's not the spikes that keep him on the cross. It's divine love. And he absorbs, okay? This is... <laughs> This is propitiation, right? <laughs> this is substitutionary atonement, right? This is God opening up the floodgates of heaven, and he is pouring out on his son the judgment for every sin that has ever been committed from Eve reaching towards the forbidden fruit to the final sin on the last day. And Jesus, in those moments where he's under the, under the waterfall of the wrath of his father, that's when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is such a shocking statement for a member of the Trinity to scream. Jesus screams from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In those moments when God opens up the floodgates of heaven and pours out. Jesus depletes the wrath of God on our behalf. Jesus consumes it. God's wrath is completely exhausted. There is not a drop left in the cup of heaven. It was all poured out on Jesus. And so Jesus absorbed the punishment for my sin. That's how Peter can say, you. And these, these people weren't present, but they were complicit. Because of their sinful nature. We weren't there in person, but we were there in spirit. And... That's the beauty of the gospel, right? Where he gets my sinfulness. My sin is imputed, transferred to Jesus, and we get his righteousness. His righteousness is transferred to me, right? That's salvation. My sins were the real cause of death. So a a medical examiner would have put asphyxiation as the official cause of death of the crucifixion. But the real cause of death was my sins. We are convicted in the courtroom of heaven as guilty. It's only when we see ourselves as the cause of the cross that we can truly appreciate and personally experience grace and forgiveness. Some of us have cheap grace because we don't see our sins. We don't see ourselves as complicit in the crucifixion. If we feel no responsibility, then we will see repentance as unnecessary. And so Peter goes, you, you did it. And they're all on the edge of their seats 
and the Holy Spirit convicts them. It's not the words of Peter. It's the presence of the Spirit that brings deep conviction. It's not Peter as the great apologist that is convincing them, that is talking them into faith in Christ. It's the Spirit saying, he's right. He's right. I wasn't there in person, but I know I was responsible because of my sin with the help of wicked men. This means Pilate and Herod. They're the obvious candidates, but it also includes the religious leaders. Another translation puts it lawless men, which is ironic because the people that prosecuted Jesus were lawyers. <laughs> Lawless men, they knew, these lawyers knew the law better than anyone, so they were able to manipulate it to fit their agenda, to support their narrative, and to keep their power. And then verse 24, verse 24 is where I want to wrap up today because this is huge. There's two words here. I want you to underline these words, highlight these words, circle these words. Verse 24, but God. <laughs> I want you to write those words down and carry them with you this week. I want you to get these words tattooed. No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> but God. That's the testimony of every Christian in two words, but God. All of these things happened to Jesus, and it seemed like he was taken out. It seems like he was defeated. It seems like the enemy had won. It seems like the schemes of these wicked men had prevailed, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Love that, love that. One commentator said, the grave could no more hold the redeemer than a pregnant woman could keep in the baby. <laughs> oh my goodness. This is where I want to end today with these two power-packed words. When the devil seems to be winning, when all hope seems lost, when your dreams are dead and buried and your heart is bruised and battered, when you are being pursued and attacked, when you are being slandered and your reputation is being destroyed, when you are beleaguered and besieged, when you come to the end of yourself, I want you to remember these two words, but God. The devil doesn't have the final word. The schemes of wicked men don't have the final word. The grave does not have the final word. A God of resurrection power, a God of signs and wonders, a God of miracles, a God of supreme authority, a God that is never surprised. Death may grip us, but it will not keep us. If you're looking for ways to connect, find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just check out the show notes for details. Thank you for tuning in. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing in your life. And I hope that you'll continue the conversation with God by opening his word for yourself. Love y'all.